Good morning. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the original Loretta Brown Show radio to open the heart, heal the soul, and awaken the consciousness. Good morning. Good morning. Benny, I had trouble getting up this morning. I got to admit, you know, it's getting darker in the morning. You know what? Uh, I did too. Yeah. I mean, did it, you? <laughs> I did. I don't know if it's something like the full moon or something or like my yeah. my covers were so much warmer than I needed to be on the outside or the inside. It was, yeah, I had troubles too. Hmm. A full moon. Hmm. <laughs> Benny. Not that full Maybe. moon. <laughs> <laughs> Not that full moon. <laughs> well, there actually was a full moon yesterday. Great, great big, huge full moon in Aries. We'll talk about that in a minute. But yeah, thanks for uh, the laughs and giggles. I do hope that we make people smile and, and <laughs> continue to stay with us because uh, we love doing the, doing the show for you. So anyway, um, I am the owner of Reiki Oasis, located right here in the greater Seattle area for quite a while, the last 26, 27 years. I have a wonderful class coming up this Saturday, Temple of the Divine Feminine, and I do this class once a month for women. It's very nourishing, it's renewing, it's heartfelt, and uh, I hope you can join us. It is via Zoom, and we have been via Zoom for, goodness, a year and a half now. It works really great and everybody loves it so you can sign up for everything at schedule.reikioasis.com every sunday at 11 a.m pacific standard time i also have a sunday meditation with loretta if you cannot be there at 11 a.m on sunday don't worry sign up and i will send you a recording of the meditation so you can listen to it at your convenience and you can listen to it over and over again if you want yeah who knew right <laughs> Loretta's voice just lulling you off to sleep. I had a, uh, I went years ago, I went to a housewarming and somebody had <laughs> one of my meditations and they said, okay, now everybody, we're going to do a meditation. And it starts out and she said, Loretta, you know what? I can't go to sleep unless I hear your voice going. And now in a moment, you will be more relaxed than you've ever been. <laughs> and it's like a signal and she just goes right out. I went, I don't know if you should play that meditation for the group, right? <laughs> it's kind of funny. Anyway, um, they are out there. I do try to put some things out that will help people. Also, a big shout out to my patrons. I am a listener supported show and you can help out at patreon.com slash the Loretta Brown show. Great big thanks to you. Also, uh, I do have a lot of announcements uh, before I get into the show. At the end of every year, I do a very special ceremony called a despacho. It's a prayer bundle, a gift for the gods. It's a, it comes from a, a shamanic tradition, and it's very powerful. A lot of people really, really love doing the despacho. It's a way to clear out the energies and the intentions of the year that's going away and invite the new year in. My despacho this year will be right at the end of December. Um, I'm only going to offer it once. It will be via Zoom. And I invite you to sign up and join it. I just kind of feel like <laughs> the last couple of years are challenging in so many ways. We're in such a powerful growth uh, time on our planet. And yeah, if you want to join, please do sign up. And then... Mr. Benny, I should put into my astrology check-in this morning because he's spot on. Many of you felt a shift of energy this last few days. A couple of things happened. 
Monday, Mercury finally stationed direct after being retrograde since September 26th. Mercury is the planet of communication. And when it's retrograde, Mercury guides us to go within, connect with our subconscious and source information from hidden to put also wants us to re-look at things from our past. Maybe we're done with all of our old stories. Oh, wouldn't that be something? And then we can make up new stories and hopefully they're better than the old ones. <laughs> I could see you smiling, Betty. <laughs> you don't have any old stories. I know you don't. No, yeah. no, no. no, no, none of that stuff. So with Mercury going direct, um, we sh things should be start to move forward. For those of you that have felt like, oh man, am I ever gonna get through this? It will start to move forward. And I wanna say, hang on to your seats because it's not only gonna start to move forward, but we're also gonna be entering eclipse season. And from now until the end of the year, we have a lot of happenings, a lot of energetic shifting and a lot of opportunity for um, <laughs> further waking up, whatever that means. Uh, I want to say Mercury will still be a little sluggish until November 2nd, and the period between now and early November is what's known as the shadow period. It is a time of heightened awareness and intuition, and whatever messages Mercury has needed to unearth for you during its retrograde cycle will now be delivered to you. So pay attention, stuff's gonna start to break loose. We also, of course, had an Aries full moon yesterday still going on. Both Mars and Pluto are very active under this full moon, adding a layer of intensity. Mars, that fiery planet, and the moon was in Aries. That's called fire. Pluto is the great transformation and it could just really bring a lot of volatility and it's a time to uh, break out of all of this old stuff and um yeah it's a time to break out of all this old stuff i want to remind you that mars and aries are courageous they're fearless warriors it could be a time to get more involved in what's going on on planet earth or at least in your own life and take the reins it's sometimes somebody once said it only takes takes 10 seconds of courage to change your life. But I think it takes one second. All you have to do is say, ah, okay, ah, I'm jumping, here I go, boom. And then do be a little bit wise about that. Don't be reactive, be responsive. Um, this is going to bring a lot of endings and closures, but also new life. And then starting on Friday, we're gonna enter Scorpio. Scorpio season, we're leaving the air sign of Libra, entering the watery sign of the intense Scorpio. Scorpio season is considered a point of rebirth on the zodiac wheel. We're shedding our skin. We are allowing ourselves to be reborn. And notice how I said the word allowing as we make our way through the final stages of the astrological wheel. As Scorpio season begins, we may feel the energy of transformation and change on the rise. Scorpio is one of the few signs that's actually represented by three different symbols, the scorpion, the eagle, and the phoenix. 
So this is a great time to make transformative changes in your life, explore your psychology or your mental health. Mental health is a big thing right now. Do not be afraid to reach out to get help for your mental health, just like you would with your physical health. And this is also a time to strengthen your intuition. Put up, light your candles, do your meditations, do your intentions, do your prayers. And we can do this. We are the ones that are here to help create this new world. Just like what Benny and I do on the show. <laughs> Got that right. I'm sorry. I know. I always have to give Betty like so many kudos because he does all the, he does the fancy stuff, you know. <laughs> fancy stuff. <laughs> and now I, my guest has been waiting patiently. I can't wait to have her on the show. This is going to be a very powerful show today, and uh, we're addressing some subjects that really need to be addressed. So my guest is Jan Phillips. Jan Phillips Quest has taken her into and out of a religious convent across the country on a Honda motorcycle and around the world on a one woman peace pilgrimage. Born gay, she became a social activist in response to the homophobia she felt even as a young girl. She entered the convent at age 18 because it was her sixth grade nun who saved her from suicide. Jan is the author of 11 award-winning books. She is a thought leader who connects the dots between spiritual intelligence, evolutionary creativity, and social transformation. She has taught in over 25 countries. We're going to be discussing her new book, Still on Fire, Field Notes from a Queer Mystic. Welcome to the show, Jan. I'm so glad you're here. Yes, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Isn't there a song, Girl on Fire? <laughs> there is. I don't know. I, I don't have it in my, um, I'm not, I, maybe I'm out of that cultural loop. You, you, yeah. I was just thinking, though, um, because I love that. Uh, by the way, I want to show it, the people that happen to be on the YouTube, the cover of your book, Still on Fire. And I love this cover. You've got your rainbow scarf on there as you're walking down a, a very mystical looking street, right? Field notes from a queer mystic. Um, your uh, life journey uh, and your book is so inspiring. Um it's very heartfelt. It's very, its own right. It's out there. Mm -hmm. And you have such a, a strong message. I have several messages, I think, to bring forward. Uh, I want to ask you this, though, if you could feel the listening audience a bit about your earlier life. When did you know you were queer? And, and, and tell us a little bit about what happened. Well, I think as, every, as we go entering into puberty, we we begin to get an awareness about our own sexuality. I don't know. I think it may be happening earlier for kids now, but back mm -hmm. in the fifties, when I was sixties, when I was beginning to reach puberty, I, it became very clear to me that I was attracted to girls and not boys. And I, it was a terrible awakening for me because everything 
I all the messaging I had received about homosexuality was nothing could be worse, right? It was terrible. There were these awful names they called us and perverts and lezzies and faggots and bull dykes and the, I'm in that category and it was a terrible frightening awareness for me so that's why I decided to kill myself because I mean even God doesn't like queers was how it came down to us I, I was raised Catholic the whole culture the whole family the whole religion there was nobody that could support any kind of goodness coming from anyone homosexual so that was kind of my understanding of the predicament I was in as a young 12-year-old teenager or moving into teens. So what happened was my sixth-grade nun, Sister Helen Charles, was pretty intuitive, I guess, because she saw the potential in me. <laughs> but she watched, she watched me get sadder and sadder and deeper and deeper into my own kind of trouble. And she called my mom and said, we have to fix her. I have a new, there's a new thing out called positive reinforcement. We're going to try this on her. And so the two of them colluded to see if they could get me out of my dark cave of despair. And what they did was just start affirming me in a big way and, applauding everything I did that was good and positive and it was a little bit weird for me but after I'd say after about a month of it a miracle happened and one day I woke up I wasn't a sad sick little caterpillar anymore I was a beautiful butterfly and when I thought of how did this happen to me all of a sudden I wake up and I'm not despairing. I'm not going to kill myself. I'm aware that I'm a leader. It was all because of Sister Helen Charles, because my mom really didn't do much. My mom was one of 14 kids, and she wasn't really going to take one out and do all this affirmation of one at the expense of the others. So it all happened in the school, in the classroom situation. And so that's when I decided nuns have a superpower. They can save kids' lives. And so that's what I'm going to be when I grow up. Now, I had to wait six years because I couldn't go into the convent until I was 18. But that's what happened. Graduated from high school, went into the convent the next September, and had two years there before they kicked me out for being gay. And in those two years, I kind of got my spiritual underpinnings. I recognized the value of prayer and silence and contemplation. And so that kind of, it shaped my whole spiritual life. I mean, I went 20 years without any kind of spiritual practice. But when I did begin my spiritual practice to 1990, I think it was, then that really was what I attribute my, 
I attribute my mystical awareness to that, that I, it, it came in attached to a spiritual practice. You know, okay, I I so ap- appreciate your story. I I I uh, and please go on. I think I interrupted you. Please go ahead. No, I didn't. No, I paused for you to comment oh. or ask the question. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, there's a lot in there. Um, I what I was going to say is that I really appreciate your story because um, number one, I think your book is really w- well written and it 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 pulls you into the so many things um yes this is a book for you know a a lesbian for queer but it's also like the i don't even know how to say this you probably will get it better than me but for you it's reading the book and and being in in your beautiful energy you know this life of contemplation and prayer like you really have it in you. And we know that the church can really um, indoctrinate us or get, you know, it gets into us. And when it's real, you know, we call it faith or religion, and we'll all have you talk about that in a minute. But for you to be thrown out, and it was very traumatizing. And I want the listeners to really understand that and, and get the depth of that because. I get the impression that you were basically rejected at all levels from everyone for for being queer. Is Could you speak a little more about that? And the reason I bring that out is I know that there's probably a lot of listeners, you know, the homophobia is, is still alive and well, <laughs> as we all know. And it's like, how how did you navigate that? Like you say, it took you 20 years. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so in 1969, I was um, sent home from the convent, and that was because they realized that I was gay and it would never work out. So that was my first, that was the first trauma. And then I was in upstate New York when it happened, Syracuse is where I was living, but I, I couldn't figure out at age 20 now, I, I don't know what to do because I never had a plan B. What, I was always going to be a nun, so I don't know how to create a life. I don't know what to do about it. So I moved to California just to get away from, you know, the mess I was in, thinking some kind of geographic change might help, which as we know now, it never does. You know, you take the whole mess with you. But when I was in California, for some reason, I still had faith in the Catholic Church. I still felt, well, that's my home. Mm-hmm. But when I went, I went, so I went to the Catholic Church in my neighborhood in Newport Beach and started teaching kids guitar so we could initiate doing folk masses at the church. And the priest was all happy about that, and I had about three kids. We all had guitars, and we started doing folk masses at the church. And then one day, I don't know what possessed me. I was in the confessional, and I told the priest that, you know, I was homosexual, not to confess to him. I don't know what it was that caused me to say that, but all the 
the priest made a big deal out of it and said, he's not going to give me absolution if I continue to live as a gay person and, and don't stop that behavior. And, you know, I was living with a person that I loved deeply, but actually a former novice who came all the way to California to live with me. And so when I went home and, and talked to her about the dilemma I was in, you know, we actually tried for a while not, not, to, be, not to be clear. You know, mm. we said, well, maybe we could try this. And we, you know, would try to date men and do things like that. But it was just totally alien to me. So that didn't work. And so the next time I went to the confessional, I told the priest, it's not working. It's like asking me to change the color of my eyes. And so I can't participate in this anymore. And he just said, okay, then I'm not absolving you. And you can no longer work with these teenagers and no more folk masses and no more sacraments for you. And so that was the end of my relationship with the Catholic Church. And I didn't become an activist till I experienced a personal confrontation with homophobia. And in, in I was at a college, junior college, taking a photography class, and we all were creating a slideshow that was automated, done to music, et cetera, et cetera. And so it took the whole semester to have all your photographs line up, dissolve into each other, work with this machine. It was, you know, prior to Photoshop. So it was a multimedia presentation with still images that could be as fluid as possible and as multimedia as possible. So the day comes for all of us to show our shows. And when I showed mine, it was you know, images from the lesbian community because I was just entering into the women's movement and my community was a community of women. And out of 120 slides, there might have been 20 that were noticeably, you could tell these are gay women together. It wasn't pornographic, it wasn't obscene, it wasn't anything sensual or sexual, but it was just obvious you could tell these women were lesbians. At maybe at a gay pride parade or whatever. So after I showed my slide show, the professor said, everybody take a break. So everyone left the room. And then he chastised me for a terrible show. He said, you know, that was awful. It's disgusting. We don't want to be exposed to that. It was in the early 70s, but still in all. You know, he was really close down to it, gave me an F, whatever. And I, when I went out to where every, all the other kids, the students were standing around, a couple of them shunned me. And I just went right over to, I went right over to the office of the professor who taught human sexuality. <clears throat> and I said to him, I want to talk to your class about what it's like to be a lesbian <clears throat> and experience homophobia. And I never went back to my photography class. That was the end of that. But I started to be a gay activist. 
<laughs> so that was the beginning of my social activism. Wow. That's a very potent story. And, and um, I also believe in the importance of the storytelling. You, in your book, share a lot of stories that really bring to the front uh, what this is like at the living level of life. And I, I know that listeners can relate to that. And I, I totally appreciate that. Um, so you were, you entered into um, women's rights movement. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. You have a, a story in your book about your mother and how she didn't accept your queerness, right? And then there came a yeah, point no, where, came, yeah, go ahead. When I came out to her, I came home from California and I was really proud of my slideshow. So I wanted to share it with my mom and dad and I had just come out, they didn't know it. And so I came back to New York and came out to my mom first. It was a Friday night. And she was horrified, disgusted, kept bringing up what a sin it was, and said, I forbid you to tell your father because he'll have a heart attack and you'll be responsible for his death. And, uh, you know, he did have heart trouble, but you know, it's just hardly computed with me. Me telling him I'm gay is going to cause him to die. That was like a little extravagant. So I I didn't want to go along with that. I said, I want to tell Dad because this is a big thing. I'm happy. I finally figured out who I am in the world. I'm happy. I have a community. I want to share my good news. And to her, it was the worst news in the world. So she took me so Saturday morning she wanted to get me out of the house so she goes get in the car we're going up to the lake you know I told you earlier she's one of a big one of 14 kids and so we have a kind of a family compound camp on a small lake up in the Adirondacks so we get in the car we go up to the lake it's a two hour drive we, we argue the whole time because she just can't settle in can't comprehend my joy and finally understanding who who I am and where I fit in. So we get up to the lake and her sister Ruth is there and her mom, my grandmother. So Ruth and her go off in the canoe ride and I'm there with my grandmother. And I said it, it we were just playing cards, and at one point I was describing to my grandma how my mom and me are at a standstill right now because we're arguing about this whole situation because I'm a lesbian, my mom is worried about it. And just when I'm talking about this, Aunt Ruth and my mom come back in from canoeing, and Aunt Ruth says, what's this, what's this problem with your mom and you? And I said, Mom can't deal with the fact that I'm a lesbian. So now it's out in the air. And my Aunt Ruth had been dealing with a moral dilemma similar to this, where she and my mom were both 
charismatic Catholics, so that is like Catholic on steroids. So they, what Ruth had to work through was that her daughter had fallen in love with, married, and had children with her first cousin, with my aunt Kay's son. Now, we have 65 grandchildren in the family because <laughs> there's 14 kids and they're Catholic and that's what happened. So, you know, we all experienced the kissing cousins phenomenon because there's so many of us. So it's no big surprise that two first cousins would fall in love, but highly immoral, not acceptable in the Catholic Church, you know, illegal in some states. And so my Aunt Ruth had to reckon with that as a Catholic woman, how to reconcile that her daughter did this, is this, is, you know, has three kids now, which I might add, who are brilliant geniuses, you know, and doing amazing things, beautiful children, three sons, doing amazing things in the world. But at that time, this is like in the early 70s, was totally unacceptable. So my Aunt Ruth had figured it out. And she looks at my mom and she goes, Marge, Jesus never said who to love, who not to love. He just said love them all. Love them all. And however she presented that thing to my mom, it hit her like a lightning bolt. And my mom started to cry, and she says, oh, my God, I can't believe I've lived this long, and I'm so stupid. And she looks at me, and she goes, you tell your father anything you want to tell him. He says, who you are is how God made you. And I can't, I'm not going to interfere with that. So she had a metamorphosis. She had an awakening, a spiritual awakening, and gave me permission to tell my dad. But at that moment, I, too, realized I don't have that kind of relationship with my father. You know, he's very quiet. He never inquired into any of our personal lives. And there was really no need to tell him because he would have a hard time understanding it. So... Some big thing happened that weekend at the lake, and it opened up the possibility for me to be in real relationship with my mother. It took, took her a couple of years to really work through the issues, just as it had taken her sister some time to work through, uh-oh, I have a child, a prodigal child, right? And so... Yeah. Ruth took her time to work through it. My mom took her time to work through it. But in the end, it all came clear that what Jesus really wants is that everyone just loves who they love, how they love them. The end. So we had a reconciliation that I talk about in the book. But, you know, the book is not... There's 30 chapters in the book. There's probably 10 that deal with the problem of being gay. But there's 20 that deal more strikingly with the spiritual path. Because this was a spiritual transformation. 
that being gay is part of my story. But the hugeness of the book is about creating spiritual life for ourselves. It's based in faith and our own created spirituality. And it's really a strong story about how to disentangle from our religious past that's confining in many ways because our religions want us to be this way and not that way. And the religions confine us and constrain us. But when we realize we're here to create a powerful spiritual life for ourselves, to create a faith for ourselves that's based on our ultimate commitments, that has really nothing to do with the dogma and the, dog, and the doctrines that we inherit from a religious tradition. So the book is an encouraging story about how we move out of our confining and constraining religious traditions into our own spiritual authority where we understand and claim the commitments and concerns that we're basing our faithful lives on. And then we construct a life that's true to our spiritual commitments. And that always leads to an activism that's related to the sufferings we have experienced as children and young adults. And we know where to make our moves to cause a world that's more just and more fair for everybody who's in it. I love what you said, everything. I love everything. Um, you know, if we can take our our lives, the pain and suffering, and in your case, you know, you, you really had to forge a, a way for yourself. You had to find it. And yeah. I'm thinking um, when all this happened, right, like you're saying 50s, 60s, 70s, and then from there, you know, you have forged the way into being a mystic, right? And, and you kind of touched on a couple of things there, but I want to ask you just directly, what is the difference between faith and religion? Because I think this is really important. Well, what's the difference between the menu and the meal? Yeah. What's the difference <laughs> between the score and the music? Right? Religion yeah. is like the score. It's the music. It's the sheet of music. But faith is like the experience of the orchestra. It's hearing the symphony. <clears throat> it's a sensual experience, and it involves our consciousness and our willingness to craft a, a spiritual path for ourselves where we say, I believe in these things, and therefore I'm going to shape my life based on it. So when I considered back to what, what, what were my real commitments, based on the words of Jesus and the example that he gave, because I hadn't been around the world. I hadn't experienced Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism. And so I only had Jesus as a guide. But he laid it out pretty clearly. Take care of the poor. Be a stand for peace. Cause justice to occur where you are. And so he was my model. And those were the three things 
that were the pillars of my faith when I didn't I couldn't didn't have a religion anymore. <clears throat> so I based my life on my faith and became a social activist. And it was all about making peace and justice. That's the difference between faith and religion. Yeah. I think it's I think it's an important thing and 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 what you said too about people disentangling themselves from i'm going to say dogma because i i I agree with you i think it restricts us or keeps us in some space where i don't know we're in a we're in a changing world here you know um you know you as a as a spiritual cultural activist i i love those words spiritual cultural activist and you you say in your book my activism is my spirituality in running shoes. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that because for me, you know, one of the inspirations from the book is, yeah, how do we, how do we transform this culture? I mean, if we look around ourselves right now, there's so much injustice, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things going on and, um, I mean, you're you're a, an activist. Can you just kind of take everything I said there and, and give us some wisdom? Yeah. So in order to have a meaningful life, in order to live a life where we feel like, yep, I got it right, my life feels balanced, full of purpose, and full of passion, I think it helps. To connect our heart's desire with our heart's break. And so, if somebody wants to know, how do I make a life that's meaningful? I say, well, what is it in the world that causes your heart to break open? Mm. Now, any one of us would look at 10 or 20 things and say, the garbage in the ocean... Some people would say the puppy mills. Some people would say the rainforest burning, the polar bears losing their environment. You know, it's like every one of us says, this breaks my heart the most. And that's the clue to where you begin to do something towards ameliorating that problem. And that becomes your spirituality in running shoes. So, for example, let's say, like for me, yesterday in my prayers, every day when I'm in my prayer mode for the first hour of the day, I try to construct a day that has the elements of prayer, work, solitude, and community. So work is a service part. So when I, yesterday I'm thinking in my prayers, what am I going to do for my service? Well, for me, the rainforest burning is a really, really sad image because that's the lungs of the planet. And we're burning the rainforest in the Amazon in order to make room for cattle farming so that we will have enough burgers for McDonald's Hmm. because we will not be a plant-based diet community of people, right? 
because everybody wants their meat. So the cause of the rainforest burning is, you know, our hunger for meat. So if I have, so I'm struggling with what can I do? It's, it's kind of an obtuse problem. I'm not going to go to the Amazon. You don't go marching for about the rainforest. So I'm just pondering that. And then didn't have an answer, but finish my prayers, get into my office, look at my email. And there's an email from the Rainforest Alliance. <laughs> Send us money. And it was like, oh, great, the answer to my <laughs> prayers. So I clicked the donate button, send them 25 bucks. And that was just like a, an indicator of how it works. Now, it's easier if, if your work can be local. We want to actually involve ourselves in something in our own community so we could engage our bodies in the activist practice. So, of course, I go to all the marches and all the demonstrations. Of course, you know, I show up for those. But when I think, like, I'm in a border town. I live in San Diego. Look at the crisis of the migrants right now. And so Mm -hmm. Jewish Family Services, fortunately, has created a whole program where they're training volunteers to be of use in the situation of the migrants. And so I go to Jewish Family Service and I say, how can I be of use? And there's two ways. And I try them both. The first is, well, we have 400 of them in a building down, downtown and they're staying there until they can get their buses or planes to go meet with their families and we feed them three meals a day and you can come and volunteer and you know for a lunch or a dinner so i go down to the building i volunteer i put my hairnet on i you know set the tables i make the ham sandwiches i clean up after it's backbreaking work i say what's the other option They say, drive the family to the airport, park in the parking lot, take them through TSA, walk them to their gate, be with them through the whole process till they get on the plane. So I do that. And we stop and buy, I stop and buy water and bananas for them. It costs me, I don't know, 10 bucks to do that. Cost me 15 bucks to park in the parking lot. That's. $25, but it's not so backbreaking, and I have a Google Translate on my phone, so I can talk to them, even though I don't speak Spanish. So that's my preferred way of helping the migrant situation. So there's those two examples. It just takes a little bit of creative thing, but you say, what breaks my heart today is this. And then you identify what can you do to help solve that. How can you show up in that? You know, and maybe go to the animal shelter, you know, depending on what it is. Because when you address where your heart breaks open, you know, I went to Nigeria in 2020 or 2010 because I was asked 
I had written a book on the making of a thought leader called The Art of Original Thinking. So this nun calls me up, says, can you come to Nigeria and do a workshop on visionary leadership for our Nigerian sisters, Dominican community? And I said, yes. And she she um, headed up an NGO, that's just a nonprofit. She headed up a nonprofit called Hope for the Village Child. I said, I'll come and do that um, weekend retreat, but I want to visit a few of your villages to see the work that you're doing. And so she said, okay, we can do that after the weekend. And so what happened was I went to a village. We got there late in the afternoon, but all these kids are lined up outside this, what they refer to as their school. And I said, what are they doing here all lined up? 2.30 in the afternoon. They, the guy said they're waiting for a teacher. But the teachers hardly ever show up. And they came running up to the Jeep, and they opened my door. They grabbed my shirt. They pulled me into the classroom. They go, be our teacher. Be our teacher. I didn't know what to do. I said, what's two plus two? Their arms fling up in the air. They go, four. They were so proud of themselves. I thought, oh, my God, these kids have been taught. I go, what's eight plus seven? Fifteen, they scream out. It's like, oh, my God, what a predicament. These kids are so hungry to be taught, but they don't have a teacher that shows up. I said to them, through my tears, because it broke my heart open to see this whole, um, they're all sitting on a dirt floor. There's not a desk in sight. There's not a book in sight. But I said to them, This is your lucky day because you got me here and I am going to help you get a teacher here. So I say to Sister Rita, we have to figure out how to get teachers there. She says it's hard because roads are not navigable and there's so much nepotism and some teachers get paid whether they show up or not. So we brainstormed it out and we said what could be a solution is if we had a an apartment for a teacher in the village. So we constructed this whole idea, get the tribal chief to donate a piece of property. We get, we build an apartment and then we see if the villagers are invested. If they want this to happen, we'll make it happen. So that's what happened. We went to the tribal chief. We went to the villagers. They thought it was a good idea. Yes, we'll make the bricks. We'll build the building. And so, long story short, within three years, we had the Living Kindness Center for Education built. It had a room in the middle, which was big enough for 30 computers. It had an apartment on each end to separate in case it was a male and a female teacher. And now two teachers live up in that village, and the kids have a teacher every day. And that's because I came home and started the Living Kindness Foundation raised $25,000 for that school to be built. And now, since the Nigerian project is solar-powered, I raised funds for the 30 computers, and Nigeria project is done, and now I dedicate my time and energy to work toward an anti-racist society. So I fund black women writers who are creatively addressing the issue 
of racism. And tomorrow I have a meeting with a black poet in my own community, and we're going to conjure up a program for teens where we mentor them in poetry, and Living Kindness Foundation will do a poetry contest, and we'll create a book of their work so they will be published authors in their teenage years. So wow. that's an example. Wow, and yes, um, thank you for that. Um, very inspiring, very uplifting, and I, I just want to add my little tiny two cents, you know, um, getting involved doesn't take that much. And you've pointed out many ways for people to do it. And I, I really believe in this too. Like you say, what is it in the world that causes your heart to break open? Look toward that. And what can you do to help? So um, we have just a, a couple of minutes left. The time went by really, really fast. Um, I, I want to ask you, what is the importance of a daily practice very quickly? And then uh, any closing remarks and where people can find you? Yeah, so the importance of a daily practice to me is the difference between having an ordinary life and an extraordinary life. And so if you choose an ordinary life, go ahead, you know, make your life up, create it however you want, don't have a spiritual practice, and have an ordinary life. Great. But if you say, oh, no, I really want to have an extraordinary life where, you know, I'm colluding in the cosmic powers of the universe, where I have a partner, I have a co-creative collaborator in my life, then in order to get that, to be a living force that animates your life, you have to really, you know, have a love affair with that beloved thing, with that great mystery, and establish a relationship where you show up every day and say, okay, I'm here, what are we going to dream up now? And, you know, that could start with 10 minutes, but it does demand your attention for 10. And I say 10 minutes is a good start, but I'm up, you know, I spend an hour at my practice every day just because it's my favorite time in the day. And it doesn't mean my mind doesn't wander. It doesn't mean I'm, you know, it means my candles lit for the whole hour. But yes. I revel in that in that hour of silence and solitude. Thank you. Yeah. I have to butt in only because we're running out of time. I'm so sorry. I love uh, your remarks there. Um, Where can people find you? My guest today, Jan Phillips, her book, Still on Fire, Field Notes from a Queer Mystic. Where can they find your book? Where can they find you? JanPhillips.com. And tell them, sign up for my newsletter because I send out a bulletin from immortality every every Sunday morning. So they get a little uplift, a little cheerleading. Yes, you can, you can do it. And, you know, a pithy little quotation that will help them through their week. So janphillips.com is the place to go. Get on my list and you'll be in the circle of support. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jan.